3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians on the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. It is the 21st of May, 2020. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, Thursday morning breakfast. How are you going, Shahrazad and Mac? Good, Carly. How are you? Oh, you look not great. Um... (laughs) But look, we're in the midst of the pandemic, so I think that's totally okay. Yeah, the the bar really changes in terms of where it's at during these times, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, listeners, we're still recording from our bedrooms or, you know, myself, my bed. Um, but, yes, hopefully these restrictions ease a little bit more soon. So um, we're also getting like a bit of feedback and a crackling as well, which is great. Um, and I think everyone's kind of in the same boat, um, kind of sick of Zoom, Zoom meetings, like not just through, just in general from having to do um, virtual hangouts. But one thing that I love is like even a whole lot of podcasts that I listen to, you know, like that have a lot of production behind them, a lot of resources thrown into them. Like even they at this time are really, um, so it makes me feel better about Thursday breakfast, you know, very occasionally having little, little crackles and pops and internet dropping in and out. Cause even sort of big dog podcasts that I listen to at this time with everyone recording from their home are struggling to maintain, you know, top notch crystal clear audio quality. So I think we're doing great. So today, um, listeners are going to be hearing the final installation of Liberation Loops episode eight. So today I have a conversation with Simon Clark, who is currently the culture and practice manager of Brook Red, a peer-led mental health service up in so-called Queensland. So we're really speaking about community mental health initiatives. Um, and then we'll head into Kim Abul, who is an emerging non-fiction writer of Beladong Noongar heritage, who is, whose writing is influenced by studying and working in urban planning. So in collaboration with a organisation from Morocco called Think Tanja that looks at the social impacts of urbanisation in the country, but in, in, in particular the northern city of Tanja. Um, so we'll be listening to some uh, audio landscapes uh, from Tanja that we heard we heard um, a little a taste a few weeks ago, and yeah, so we'll be listening to some more of that for something a little bit different. After that, we're going to hear a chat that I had with Dr. Patricia Ranald about how mining companies, big pharma and other global corporations use trade agreements to pressure and sue governments, including possible impacts of the essential COVID-19 public health measures that we've been seeing. And last up, um, we're going to hear a conversation I had with Paul Kidd from Fitzroy Legal Service about their new COVID policing service, which is a free information and advice phone service for people who've been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID restrictions. And now headlines with Kate Kelly. 
A survey of over 500 cleaners conducted nationally last week has revealed that 9 in 10 cleaners are having to rush essential cleaning work and 8 in 10 do not always have enough cleaning equipment during the coronavirus crisis. So despite the coronavirus crisis highlighting how important our cleaners are, many of them are in a constant state of worry over job security, with 77% worried about losing their job and 80% worried they will lose hours. United Workers Union, the cleaners union, has released the results to launch a new campaign calling for decent wages and secure work for Australians cleaning workforce in the post-COVID-19 world. Linda Ryan, Director of Property Services for the United Workers Union, said the coronavirus had showed how important cleaners were and called on businesses employing them to make sure they had better pay and fair working conditions. Over to WA, where two Aboriginal peak advocacy groups have urged the Western Australian Government to reject a child protection bill that went before the State Parliament on Tuesday, saying that crucial amendments are needed to be made before it's passed. So the Noongar Family Safety and Wellbeing Council, together with SNAICC, the National Voice for Our Children Want Section 81 of the proposed Children Community Service Amendment Bill, revised, claiming that it may lead to violations of, of human rights of vulnerable Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and their families. So the proposed amendment bill was introduced to the WA Parliament in November last year. And the two peak groups are claiming that Section 81, which refers to the placement of children, allows for Aboriginal children to be removed from their parents following consultation with only one of the child's family members. Indigenous children make up 55% of all children in out-of-home care in Western Australia, according to the 2019 Productivity Commission's report. And the Victorian Pride Centre, which is scheduled to open later this year, has promised to be a welcoming space for all, especially vulnerable Australian LGBTQI youth. On Sunday, the centre announced a new initiative to mark the International Day to mark International Day against homophobia, biophobia, intersexism, and transphobia. It's called Next Generation Pride. So Next Generation Pride, according to the centre, will be a youth-driven program that will engage young LGBTQI persons and create fun and safe spaces for them. The centre will work with its tenant minus 18, Australia's leading LGBTQI youth organisation for this initiative. And that's all for Thursday Headlines. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free, one of us is chained, none of us are free.
What would you like to share with listeners today? Other ways of responding to harm. Liberation. This sound shield that you could take with you to protest. Collaborative dialogue. Demystify the process. Liberation loops. Hi, my name is Carly Beck and you're listening to Liberation Loops, a series that has been created from both by Bedroom and from the 3CR studios on the lands of the Wandjeri and the Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. This is a series that dives deep into people's practices to challenge the criminal legal system and through this series I hope to discover in what ways people are already addressing violence in our communities and in what ways people are learning to heal from harm. Today on the show, I speak with Simon Clough. In his 15-year career in social services in Queensland, Simon has worked across homelessness, disability employment, drug and alcohol, harm reduction and mental health. Simon is currently the Culture and Practice Manager of Brook Red, a peer-led mental health service. Simon is a passionate advocate for lived experience practice, learning to live with his own mental health concerns and using them to assist others. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for joining us here on 3CR. Thank you, Carly. Really appreciate the opportunity. So you work at Brook Red, um, which is an organisation based up in so-called Queensland, uh, a peer-operated community supporting holistic recovery from mental health concerns. So can you define what mental health means to you and how did you come into this work? Hmm. Um... Look, that, that's complex. I think mental health for me means, um, I guess, being happy with your, your sort of existence in, I, I, I guess, kind of feeling a, a, an acceptable kind of range of emotions that you're happy to feel in your life. Um, and I, I guess kind of it probably ties in with like that general sense of, of well-being, kind of like purpose, connection to others, all, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think is is probably pretty pretty important in that space, particularly for me and, and my experience, kind of struggling with my mental health from time to time. So yeah, I guess that's um, sort of that that holistic picture of uh, being okay with that that range of emotions that we all feel on a day to day basis, and and actually feeling some sense of purpose and connection in your existence. Um, so for me, that sort of I guess is is what optimal mental health would look like. Um, I, I came into this work um, sort of, uh, I, I guess it's the only kind of real, real job I've, I've ever had is in this space, not necessarily just mental health, but um, I think uh, quite a few years ago, like 15, 15, 16 years ago, I started working at, um, been through some stuff. Um, my mum had passed away and had some, some interesting life stuff going on and I started working at a needle and syringe program uh, for Queensland Health, so it was... Um, a place called Biola and um, sort of I was uh, supporting people who were um, sort of injecting substances to have like better health um, and make sure that they could access clean injecting equipment and then kind of off the back of that managed to get a job at like a uh, it was like a pilot project it was all a bit fancy Kevin Rudd came and opened it and stuff Um, and it was uh, sort of working with some of I guess the the what I really don't like this word, but um, the complex folk in Brisbane who were experiencing homelessness and they had to have more than just the one kind of set of problems going on. So some, usually some substance abuse, long-term homelessness and be banned from some other places. 
And look, there were some really good things about it, but it was also like not maybe not not the, the best place in the world. I might not necessarily work for for, for that company again. I, I just sort of saw a lot of that sort of the big bureaucracy that's involved in an organisation like that, and some some really good and some sort of not so great choices um, that really affected the staff, and most importantly, the people that we worked with and their kind of outcomes. Um, I guess I, I housed a lot of people that. I probably didn't do a lot to address any of their underlying issues um, or actually support them in any really genuine way um, because of the the timelines that we had to work with people. It was very much, um, I guess, like a three-month sort of turnaround. You had to come in, sort of try and connect them with some services and then get them out again so someone else could come in. Um, and so despite the fact that I rehoused a lot of those people, um, I think probably... I saw at least half, if not, you know, three, you know, three quarters of those people come back through that place again after having lost um, the the housing option that we we had for them, and there were more housing options back then than there are now. Um, so it was um, quite quite a learning curve. I had a bit of a nervous breakdown and had to move to Japan for a bit. Um, and obviously, mental health was like throughout that. There was no separation between the homelessness, the addiction, and, and the mental health concern. Um, so yeah, it was um, quite a learning experience. Um, and then I, I came back and um, started doing some some other work um, in, in community mental health um, at a really innovative and interesting place. Um, and unfortunately, due to some funding issues, after a few years of doing that, a whole bunch of us got made redundant. And then I, I went back to working with drug and alcohol for a really great NGO called Quinn. They were an absolutely lovely place. And I managed the needle and syringe program there for a bit and then got back in about five, six years ago. Um, my my friend who's, who's my, my boss um, asked if I was interested in working with a community of people um, in West End um, at a community centre. And that's how I ended up at Brook Red. Fantastic. So, yeah, can you tell listeners a little bit more about how Brook Red operates um, as a peer-operated community support Sure. So uh, around about um, 20 years ago, a woman named Jude, um, look, I think it was initially, it was um, owned by the hospital um, and it was a place where OTs were working with people with long-term, you know, complex mental health issues, um, doing some sort of um, craft and, and literally basket weaving and stuff. Not not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm all of that craft. I love it. <laughs> so um, I think it's, it's kind of great. That's a big part of my my like personal well-being is making stuff um but yeah i guess there's that sort of typical kind of image of, of sort of um ITs, you know 20 years ago working with people and in a community center what they found was what they were doing with people was not really the most beneficial thing for them it was probably um the the connection and the friendships that they they formed in in coming to that center and connecting with each other and working on all of that kind of the psychosocial stuff that I guess um, a lot of people are pretty deprived of when they've had some really extreme experiences with their mental health in their life and particularly a lot of interactions with that clinical model of mental health where you spend a lot of time in hospital and um, a lot of time not, not living not living life to the full perhaps. Um, so yeah, um, anyway, so the Lady Jude got some funding um, from, from the government uh, with the support of, of those OTs at that centre um, to start what, what I believe is Australia's first like peer-operated mental health service. 
I think some other people in that drug and alcohol, the drug and alcohol space were doing some, some peer operated stuff. Um, but that basically means that the person that, that you know, the, the crazy people run, run the crazy place, um, which I'm, I'm quite a fan of. I think, um, that sort of experiential learning is, is really useful, um, when you're trying to assist people with their mental health recovery. I think, it's kind of like I always compare it to like going to a bike shop or something. Like if I, I, I spend stupid amounts of money on push bikes occasionally because <laughs> I'm not recovering from it. And a knee injury, I actually love love riding bikes in the forest. It's pretty good for you. Um, and so I, I would never really buy a bicycle or someone that doesn't ride bikes probably in a, mm. a, a similar way to me as possible. And I really think about getting kind of support around your mental health in, in the same way. Um, I think if someone's actually kind of walked that walk, and if we think about like other things in our lives, um, you know, it kind of resonates. Like you, you want to, I coach a lot. I coach some sports, some martial artsy stuff, and um, I think you know the best coaches I've had have always had a lot of expertise and often competed themselves. So it just kind of, um, and they've certainly been practicing for for a long period of time. And I, I think um, kind of mental health provision, or, or you know, drug and alcohol, or you know, perinatal services or, you know, whatever you're looking at, um, whether it's the experience of being a carer and actually supporting other carers through that process. Um, it does, that, that sort of experiential learning backed up by, um, I guess, you know, an academic understanding and a really firm knowledge of, of the most recent developments in that space um, really can, can create like a, a really strong, um, or can be a really useful Thing for people experiencing whatever it is they're experiencing. Mm. And Simon, you did mention how community mental health collectives and organisations work differently to um, the clinical mental health like institutions. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that clinical mental health kind of institution looks like, um, as well as then maybe defining a bit more what entails um, in that community mental health? Um, and what are some of the ways maybe um, that community mental health um, addresses some things like you mentioned previously, like how a lot of um, like not-for-profit organisations run on this, you know, three-month funding model, like for working with people and don't actually address those really like underlying systemic issues happening in people's lives. Yeah, I think, I think there's a, a lot of push to have really quick fixes to stuff. Um, and I think... Certainly with mental health, there is no quick fix. Like it's not like I'm still, you know, I've, I've experienced, you know, several periods of my life where I had really, you know, quite extreme um, issues controlling my mental health and, and like being, you know, kind of positive and wanting to live the, 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 the you know, big chunks of that. Um, having said that, like, you know, that that work doesn't stop once I'm, I'm kind of back to a, an acceptable range of emotions for me. Um, you know, I need to kind of keep doing doing those things and, and getting, you know, kinds of different kinds of support. Um, and for me, most of those are, are non non clinical now. Um, and, and I certainly never. I think the clinical solutions never really resonated for me. I've met lots of people for whom they've been incredibly useful and beneficial. Um, but I mean, I, I guess even sort of diagnosis as useful as that can be for people is also problematic. Um, you know, if I've been, you know, if I've accepted a diagnosis, particularly that's happened, you know, quite young you know, in my life, um, it may be hard for me to think of myself as more more capable or, or able to overcome that. 
um, you know, I may be resigned to kind of sitting sitting with that. And, and unfortunately, um, I think it's very difficult in that kind of. Um, sorry, I've got my cat on my lap. It's, it's meowing at me. Um, in that hospital and health environment um, where there's a lot of time pressures, you know, there's a lot of people that, that are seeking help. Um, it can get to be a bit of a re- revolving door because it's very hard to do kind of long-term work with people. And that work happens in isolation outside of, um, I guess, community for the most part. Like it's like you go and see someone um, and they don't get to see you struggling with your your kind of life on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, you know, they, they do what they can and they're, they're, they're very well-meaning. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, I've met some some absolutely amazing clinicians. I'm not, I don't have an issue with clinical mental health in general. I just don't think it's it's a complete solution by itself. It's not a holistic solution to the problems that people experience in society. And can you tell us maybe a little bit about like what kind of tools you use on a day to day basis? I think what we kind of do, I guess, uh, as a mental health service is, is try and bring people together. We're one of the few places that um, is really focused on providing um, what we call mutual support. So having people come together and actually kind of share their experiences, um, share each other's company, share a meal, um, kind of be, be in each other's space and have to kind of negotiate that sort of awkward thing that it is to be around other humans in society um, and kind of learn from that experience in a kind of safe, very safe and supported way, um, which I think is, you know, often kind of what's missing for people in, in life and society sometimes. I guess we, we sort of encourage people to do things like, you know, obviously develop some sort of artist, artistic or craft practice. We encourage people to get outdoors and, and do some exercise. Um, we, we take people to yoga um, at a yoga studio in the community, not like getting a yoga instructor into just teach us crazy people because we're not safe enough to go outside to the community. You know what I mean? Um, stuff, stuff like that, just that kind of, um, and, and trying to connect people with stuff that they can continue to do without us. So we're not trying to create kind of dependency mm. on us for people to, to get that stuff. So we're trying to introduce people to things that we know because there's some, a body of evidence that it is really helpful and useful for people to do these things to, kind of work, you know, work on their mental health concern and they feel more positive about their life in general. Um, and we try and connect them to something that hopefully they can then continue to do in their own time without us. Um, and, and we've been somewhat successful in that. Well, certainly, you know, it's, it's what we try and do. Obviously, we, if, you know, if there's a crisis, once we have that connection and rapport with people, then we can kind of pull out all the stops. And that's just like, I guess, our, our community work. We've got some other suicide prevention programs that are probably much more kind of crisis focused. And we actually do some, some, we've had to start doing some work in, in the disability space, um, which we think we do a really amazing job of, but that's like kind of 24 hour support. And with the introduction of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, um, kind of to, to generate enough income to keep um, everything afloat, um, we've, we've had to kind of work in that space and uh, try really hard to improve. I guess the quality and connection, um, and empower those those folk to kind of live their lives to the, the the most extent they can. And Simon, you did mention before that you do support people who have come into crisis. So I was just wondering for listeners, um, what are some signs that someone might be entering a mental health crisis, and what are some ways that we can support people? That's a really tough one, hey. Um, I often think like, you know, obviously 
just listening and and sitting with and talking and trying to be there for people who are in crisis is great but I actually don't think like when people are in crisis that's the time that we should be doing the most work with folk um like you, you don't have much of an ability to actually make make a massive amount of ground other than just to get back to to safe being safe <laughs> like just that trying to find that sense of safety and and, and a safe space until you can get some cognition around what's actually going on for you. Um, we do a, a whole bunch of training around um, a, a product called Assist, which is is pretty cool. Um, and so it's it's kind of around having like suicide first aid conversations, and it's really just around getting people to kind of stay safe for now. And and I really think that's the best thing to do in crisis. I think like all of us probably can tell when people are, are struggling. Some people look. Some people like are. If you imagine it like as a river, right? Like some people are being dragged along by the current. They've gone over the, the dam or the waterfall that I guess is is the the thing that you know most of us are up up above the dam, swimming in the calm waters. And, and if you get pulled into the rapids, which you know obviously I'm, I'm sort of describing that as an adverse mental health experience, um, you kind of um, some people float above the water and they're waving their arms and they just need some people on the riverbank to sort of see them and throw them a lifeline and pull them out or whatever and ask them if they're okay and then they'll be all right. Some people are going to be like, you know, under that current and you'll, you'll never really know for sure whether they're experiencing or what they're experiencing. Sometimes that can come out if you take the time to kind of sit with people and, and ask. Um, there's no harm in asking someone if they're okay or not. Um, I, I think just that surfacing of, you know, like, are you okay? Like, that that's not what I'm talking about by asking someone if they're okay. I'm talking about spending time with someone that you're concerned about going, oh, hey, like, I know if you, you just don't seem yourself or I noticed that you um, seem to be really angry or upset today or I noticed that um, you seem really down and it's been like a week or so. Like, are you okay? Like, I know you don't really know me, but if you want someone to chat to, I, I think that's pretty much all we as, like, citizens in the community can really do. Um and I guess trying to convince those people to actually take some steps around trying to find some some kind of support. Um, you know, I don't think you can kind of necessarily fix that, but trying to get those people. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it's a really tough one to kind of narrow down. It's not like mental health looks like anything specific. Um, do you know what I mean? Mm, like I've, I've mm. Um, some friends in my life through some some really hectic stuff, like before I even worked in this space, and um, you know addiction and and you know loss and and psychosis and and all sorts of stuff. And it always looked kind of different. I mean, what you could tell was that that person was, you know, in some sort of trauma or distress. Um, you know, and I think that's it's often really connected. And things weren't going that great for them in their life. That was interfering with with what was going on for them. Um, you know, within the life that they wanted to live. I think mean, people think there's sort of like a magic solution and, and there's not. Like people just need to um, actually kind of have the environment and get the support and be safe enough and have things like a roof over their heads and enough mm. money to live on, you know, all, all of Absolutely. these kind of, uh, other kind of things that, that stop people from recovering in, in their life, you know. Um, like unless I, I have an environment where I have, where if there's a lot of stress in my life, I, my ability to kind of discover myself, learn, grow, development, learn new things, it's all severely compromised, right? Um, so, like, I don't know, it's like if you were trying to remember some objects that were on a table and some people are yelling at you and then they cover that up, try and recall that. Whereas if you if you were calm 
and centered and, and able to look at those things and then they covered it up. You probably remember most of what was on that table. And kind of life and, and mental health is actually really similar to that. It's like, unless I can alleviate that stress and, and that struggle for survival, it's probably really difficult for me to actually make some substantial um, recovery in that mental health space. Mm. And I think, you know, the things that you've been talking about today, like, seem really simple, but are actually just so vital to actually like everybody's mental health. And so I think even, you know, like responding to people who are going into crisis as well, like you've been talking about things like making sure people have you know, a roof over their head, like make sure people are getting that rest, that sleep, um, and thinking about things that actually like make us feel safe and having, you know, good food. Um, and yeah, like are there any other initiatives or tools that you wanted to share with listeners? that don't, sure. I guess, like turn to state interventions. Like I think a lot of people, if yeah. they see somebody really spiraling, that they will panic and they'll think, like, who do I need to call? I've got yes. to go to hospital. Can I call the doctors? Yeah, look, I mean, I think people should have a relationship with their doctors and their GP. I think those people are lovely and, and despite being very time poor most of the time, um, they're, they're in, incredibly skilled and well-meaning um, and can be a massive support in your mental health journey. But that's that's not where it should stop. <laughs> like if, mm. if you want, you want, if you want to, you know, live your life to to the best extent, you've you've got to add add some stuff to that that you do. And I'm a bit like the physio thing, right? Um, it's not not such a bad analogy. Um, I, I think finding someone who is um, experience in, in that sort of, you know, community mental health setting. Um, I think it, having, um, a strong sense of rapport with someone. So whether that's, um, sort of a psychologist, I think psychologists are great. Um, they're, they're not like everything. Like you need to be doing other things in your personal life as well. Like we said, sleeping, eating well, um, doing some kind of exercise, um, trying to get involved with like communities. Um, so whether that's like, you know, if you're feeling a bit isolated, like, a, you know, like a men's shed or a, for me, it's always been kind of like a sports club or a community like that. Um, you know, some mates that you ride some bikes with or someone that you do some craft with. I've really got into blacksmithing over the last six years. I love doing that now. Um, just, you know, anything that gives you like a sense of, you know, that's art, like an art group or something. Um, anything that gives you like a, a sense of identity and uh, achievement, um, can, can really support, um, I think good mental health. Um, I think there's there's obviously some really good things out there. Um, I, I'm not personally a fan of like 12 step programs, um, but um, that that's probably due to due to my experience with them. It just sort of wasn't my jam. Um, I, I know they've been really helpful for for some people that I've worked with. It's a really cool thing, and I think there's some happening in Melbourne. It's called Out Sue. So it's like um, uh, it's, it's Kind of like a, a meet-up group where people um, who are experiencing suicidal distress um, can get together and actually talk about that in a really open and honest and frank way um, and not like dump on each other, but just kind of learn from each other's strategies. I think the Hearing Voices movement is absolutely amazing. I love that. We really support that up here and there's definitely some of that happening in Melbourne. So it's like a, yet again, like an international movement of people that get together um, and actually talk about their experience of having auditory um, and sensory hallucination um, and how that's affected them in their life and what they do to kind of address that. That's really, really cool. Um, 
on else? There's the Big Seals Club. They're down your way as well. Um, it's like um, some some really rad folk behind that. If you just like Google Big Seals Club, um, I think it does cost some money to to join up. Um, but I think they've also got like some scholarships and stuff for people who are experiencing, who you know aren't aren't kind of as financially stable. Um, and so that's really just um, kind of there's a reading and then everyone gets together and kind of discusses that and talks about like the big messy feelings that that we all experience in our lives. I think that's that's really cool because it's not, um, do you know what I mean? It's not it's not sort of sponsored by the state. I think we really pride ourselves, like Brook Red really prides ourselves on being able to navigate that space well um, and really push the boundaries of what's what's interesting and innovative in that space. Um, we, we try and do, um, I don't know, try and try and push the boundaries of what we think best practice and good work is. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's it's tough, eh? Like this. Um, yeah, like some someone needs to pay for that work. Obviously, as a society, we we trust that our government's going to pay for people to do do really good stuff. Is that always the best stuff? Uh, look, some sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Um, you know, um, that is that my opinion? Yeah, that's my opinion. It's not, not necessarily <laughs> opinion of regret. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a complicated kind of space. Do I think we need to kind of stop looking at, at clinical solutions as the only solution? Yes, 100%. Um, we need to stop thinking that if we take someone to hospital and they get medicated, that they're then going to be well again. That's not that's not how it works. <laughs> um, you know, people need to do a, a lot more than you know, turn up to a clinical service and take some medication to get their lives back to, to where they'd like to live them. And some of that's probably about fixing, like, you know, stigma and um, discrimination and um, some of, you know, the inequity that we see in our society. Um, all of that stuff is connected to, to mental health and well-being too, I think. Anything else that you'd like to leave listeners with, Simon? Take that step. Be courageous. Be a courageous friend. Be a courageous member of your community. Um, like, ask people if they're. Don't just ask them if they're okay. Like, sit with people, listen mm. to them. Um, actually, genuinely support them. <laughs> um, I think that's that's what we as like citizens in 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 society can do is actually look out for each other, care about each other. Um, a, lo- a lot of your politicians. Um, the fact that you know, obviously, uh, New Start itself is like forty dollars a day. Um, that is mm. not not enough for anyone to live on, um, you know, and and it makes it so much harder. So if, if you know you're going through a patch in your life, and I think all of us have been through something in our life that kind of knocked us off off kilter, and there's lots of different ways of, of understanding that, you know, whether that's sort of some sort of existential crisis, or whether that's you know an adverse childhood experience. Most of us have had something. Um, that, that, that rocked us, um, you know, and, and the fact that people don't have the basics, you know, the fact that they, they can't pay their rent or eat three times a day really does affect their ability to actually overcome that and, and look to move forward in their lives. Um, yeah. So I guess, you know, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah a lot of you politicians, not just for more funding for services, like that's great and I'll, I'll certainly take it, we'd love to be doing, you know, <laughs> Better and more work. I'd love to, you know, to to do to do more more things in that space. Um, but but actually, probably more importantly than that, we need to kind of lobby our politicians to just just decrease the inequity and, and oppression 
in general. Mm. <laughs> um, well, you know, Simon, uh, I... And, and then look out for each other in society. <laughs> um, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that, yeah, that's all we have time for today um, on Liberation Loops. So thank you so much for joining me. No worries. Yeah, cool. Okay, babe. Thank you so much. Really appreciate um, the opportunity to rant at you all. Um, and it was really lovely to meet you, Carly. Thank you. Just then you heard a conversation that I had with Simon Clough from Brook Red about community mental health initiatives. And that is the eighth and final episode of the Liberation Loops mini-series as part of 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. In this series, we spoke about how to cancel the sounds of the cops, and we spoke about pod mapping and developing and mapping out your networks prior to coming into a crisis. We spoke about collaborative dialogue and how to have those really deep and difficult but intentional conversations with people who have caused harm. And then we went into a couple of episodes about healing, and so we spoke about all the ways in which writing can be used as a tool for liberation, and just going out and learning about and discovering the healing remedies that already exist in your backyard. And then we delved into some more tools that can be used um, to support people who are experiencing or have experienced harm, so asset mapping and safety planning, and then delved into how surveillance operates in the settler colony. I hope that everyone has taken away something to talk about with friends more deeply um, or taken away some frameworks and tools that you can practice because that's what this work is all about. So until next time, yours in practice. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Now we're going to hear some prose from Tima Ball, who is an emerging non-fiction writer of Baladong Noongar heritage, whose writing is influenced by studying and working in urban planning. In 2016, she won the Westerly Magazine Patricia Hackett Prize, and her writing has appeared in a range of anthologies and literary journals. Hi, my name is Tima Ball. I'm going to read something I wrote earlier this year for the Westerly magazine Land, Money, Power, Sex, Literature and Ideas special, which was part of the Perth International Arts Festival. It's called Imaginary Conversations About the Past and the Future. Number one, we don't live here anymore. Courtney said I should look out further. She said... It wouldn't hurt us. She carefully explained that I didn't need all these coffee shops. So I drove out to Preston, attracted by her deadpan wisdom, following the multi-storey dwellings developing down high. It wasn't that depressing. Just discount stores, supermarkets and a lentil as anything serving the latest wave of artists with credit debt and young professionals with expensive pets. Imagining their next move on express trains to office jobs mourning their Collingwood homes, still believing that neoliberalism could be stopped by housing co-ops on eco-friendly land trusts. 
as I saw Lisa Belair's image selling meticulously detailed finishes, a black poet used in an architectural marketing campaign where boutique apartments spread through Fitzroy Lanes, while a grey hair property developer in a turquoise suit pulled all the capital. And Courtney Barnett sung about the sadness of it all before our High Street local wrapped herself in Jimmy Fallon's arms, Grammy Awards, World Tours, an appearance on The Ellen Show. She did something with her languid drawl, but I rarely see her in Preston anymore. Two, they said money helps. In time, I had a little cash, running shamanic healing sessions for out-of-work actors and corporate litigators. Spiritual power for a thousand an hour in New York City, living with the Kumiye Nation poet Tommy Pico in our Brooklyn brownstone. Scribbling frantically in our moleskins between shifts, searching for answers to the string of emails, excavating heritage for settler needs and the glow of our phones sending messages from curious men not knowing what any of it meant. Just black land, white concepts, no answers. Three. What we do when we know the truth. In New York, men brawl and homeless crawl into strange urban crevices. Crowds walk swiftly and miss our gaze, lured by fluorescent lights and discount sales. And Brooklyn means broken land, where people don't feel the ground. But men grew bars in search of meat. Predators were fairly pleased to meet as they catch our eye with a dirty smile and mop of grey curls and tailored trousers enters the gentrified Bushwick local. Leans in carelessly with his expensive drink, tells us his sex life is like porn, repetitive, thin. He's like, where are you from? Williamsburg. No, I mean, where are you originally from? Melbourne, San Diego. No, I mean, where are your parents from? Melbourne, San Diego. No, I mean, where are your exotic looks from? Tommy starts to gently nibble his earlobe and I softly whisper, We're First Nations people. We're not from anywhere. We always have and always will be here. In his white linen bed sheets, tangled, wet and meek, we call him Master because colonialism never had another option. On hot nights, we walk the streets, choking on pavement heat, wondering how riders should be, peering through Tribeca windows, laughing at the stark slick art on crisp gallery walls, clinging to the hope that our words might mean something more. We lay on rooftops, unable to sleep. And Tommy laughs when I tell him that white riders ride about the Merry Creek idolising pre-colonial Melbourne by calling it Nam Birunga. They ride of the long grass lizards and birds before John Batman arrived like they were there first because they belong there. Four, are we tourists? Tommy mentions the American kids who see the fallen dead girls from Twin Peaks, carnal longing and snow climbing on summer road trips via post-Nirvana Seattle nostalgia. While quiet histories of Salish native peoples pass softly through the streets, because catching a glimpse of a native on TV is better than the real thing and you can ignore the kid from the public housing or the social worker from the tribal land council. 
And we both know they thought it was impressive that an Indian even had a role on a primetime TV show. Didn't know natives had jobs too. While we watched Deputy Chief Tommy Hawkill talk Blackfoot Indian mysticism to Special Agent Cooper as Lucy asked Hawk about his heritage with that nauseating ignorance that's still so familiar. Tommy and I visit the Great Northern or Salish Lodge, all oakwood fireplaces and views of the falls. We're looking for Agent Cooper, avoiding other road trippers and $30 motels. But a country club accent explains the cost of it all. Almost worth it for a balcony patio chaise lounge in the roar of Snoqualmie Fall. The concierge carefully explains to us that it's proudly Indian owned. Renewed access to fishing resources accelerated the Muckleshoot tribe into casino gaming on reservations. The Muckleshoot owns the hotel and he thinks he's part of the tribe now with his sculptured quiff, tortoiseshell glasses and Native American bosses. On the other side of town in our small motel room with brown floral carpet and weathered curtains, we listen to the falls and call of poker machines. Five. Whose land is it anyway? I stop writing about culture or connection to the land because I'm not that naive and most mornings I wake up on the Upper East in a penthouse with a freshly pressed Wall Street stockbroker lying on my chest, wondering how I'll write about his silver cufflinks and taught for seek in my confessional sex novel on the L train heading back home to Lorimer Street. But on occasions the air is still and Mother Nature reveals herself to me again. In a book written in English by a Wanyi woman who uses the master's language better than he can. So I go back to Preston, no police arresting, just Tommy and me eating overpriced eggs in a repurposed warehouse served salaciously by queer waiters, barely noticing Courtney Barnett and Jen Kohler slip casually into the opposite seats. Tight black jeans and leather jackets, lo-fi rock via LA acclaim, talking record deals with a new young hopeful they might be signing to their boutique label. Because art is a well-placed selfie, where decolonial fantasies flood online landscapes. And all across Instagram, people are posting pictures of great southern land. And just then, we heard some prose from Timar Ball. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here I'd like to say thank you for all for coming um, helping, giving us a chance to do this it's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now hopefully it goes, it keeps going you know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there 
as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here, and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am, and now we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Patricia Reynold on the show. Patricia, would you just like to introduce yourself first for listeners? Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Patricia Reynold. I'm the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network which is a network of community organisations, and I'm also a research fellow at the University of Sydney. And, you know, we don't often talk to people about free trade on on Thursday breakfast, but I asked you onto the show today because I was reading um, an article that you wrote about how it's possible in the wake of COVID-19 that we might be seeing more and more sort of big businesses and corporations suing government for what they claim are fallouts in income as a result of restrictions in relation to public health. Can you talk us through, yeah, what what might happen in the future in this area? Yes, well, in the last 20 years, there have been, um, especially in regional and um, bilateral agreements, that's agreements between two countries, um, ones like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, these trade agreements have included a clause which gives special rights to foreign investors to be able to claim damages or sue governments in international tribunals if a change in law or policy, if they can argue that such a change harms their investment. And the most notorious example we have of that in Australia is when the Philip Morris Tobacco Company um, tried to sue our government over our plain packaging of tobacco legislation uh, in um, 2012, um, they lost the case, but the Australian government still had to defend. It still had to defend it, and they spent. It took almost seven years and 12 million dollars in legal costs to defend the case. Um, so, in the context of the pandemic, um, there is a whole um, industry now of there are over a thousand. Uh, cases of this kind globally that we know about um, uh, in that have just already occurred and um, in the context of the pandemic the legal firms which run these cases are starting to advertise uh, to global corporations saying there may be opportunities for you to claim compensation from governments in these international tribunals over things that governments do which harm your profits in the um, during the pandemic. <laughs> so they're kind of <laughs> already canvassing these opportunities. And the sort of things, it wouldn't just be about health regulation, although all of the unusual regulation that's happening at the moment are to do with the pandemic. But for instance, um, if the government may, some trade agreements have rules which guarantee that and reinforce that pharmaceutical companies will have 20 years of um, monopoly on new medicines. Now, during the pandemic, and that means they can 
charge very high prices for those medicines. During the pandemic, governments may want to take emergency measures to make medicines available at lower prices. Um, so that's one example where it might be um, possible that a global pharmaceutical company would want to sue a government um, if they thought that such a um, an emergency measure would harm their investment. Um, I think that's less likely actually because it would bring them into such disrepute. But there are some other possible cases. For example, all of the shutdowns that have occurred of um, businesses during the pandemic and arguments about which businesses should uh, operate and which shouldn't. There could be companies whose um, income and profits are affected by that. So that's another possible um, area where cases could be considered. Now I'm not saying that all of this will happen, but it is, I think, revealing that the legal companies that represent, the, sorry, the legal um, firms that represent companies in these cases are already, if you like, touting for business in this area. And it points to one of the big flaws in our um, bilateral and regional trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership that they actually have these provisions that enable foreign investors to sue governments for what are essentially public interest regulations um, even during a pandemic. The other big category of corporations that sue governments are mining companies, suing governments over environmental regulation of mining, but also increasingly over um, go actions that governments are taking to reduce carbon emissions. So for example, the US Westmoreland Company is suing Canada um, because the um, one of the Canadian provinces has introduced a policy to phase out um, uh, coal mining at, in order to reduce their carbon emissions. Um, and there are other examples. Um, there's a similar example of a um, German company suing um, the Netherlands for the same kind of reason, a uh, German coal company. And um, there's even a case against the Swedish government because it decided to phase out uranium mining for environmental reasons. Um, that case was just announced this year. So you can see that mining companies in particular and um, tobacco companies have used it have used these cases to try and discourage governments from introducing regulation that they um, that basically harms their investment and that they oppose but it's a very undemocratic um, mechanism because of course governments um, can get discouraged there's what's called a freezing effect and in fact um, one of the um, Chevron, the Chevron mining company, there were some documents exposed a few years ago in which they said, we use ISDS, this investor state dispute process, in order to discourage governments from <laughs> environmental regulation. Um, so it is a very anti-democratic process. I'm not necessarily, you know, super concerned about how much government's out of pocket at the end of the day. What I'm really concerned about is like, what, what are the impacts on people, on us as activists or as workers or as community members? What does this mean for how we, you know, fight back against, against mining companies, against global corporations? Well, I think it means we should be demanding, first of all, that we don't have these sorts of provisions in trade agreements. 
But um, secondly, um, the arguments that we should use are that um, we shouldn't allow global corporations to be threatening our governments with law cases or actually t with these cases or actually taking such cases basically because governments have responded to what people want them to do. I mean another classic example is the whole movement in Australia against um, uh, fracking and um, gas mining. Now that movement has succeeded in getting some state governments to um, put regulations around fracking or to put moratoriums on it. Now that's the result of a democratic uh, movement and process which has resulted in government taking some action. Um, now we shouldn't have a situation where a global company can come in and say, well, unless you change this regulation, um, you know, you'll be sued. That, that is a real undermining of um, what uh, grassroots and democratic movements have achieved. And we should be exposed, if that happens, we should be exposing that to and, and calling governments to account, making them stick to their um, original, um, to the legislation or regulation that they have introduced. And so, Pat, what, in your view, are some alternatives? What could an uh, alternative post-COVID um, world look like when it comes to more equitable forms of trade and international relations? Well, I think it's very important, first of all, that we exclude from trade agreements things which actually increase the rights of global corporations. So, first of all, no investor rights, but in a pandemic, it's especially crucial to do that rights that are often enshrined in these agreements. That is, um, for medicines, for example, the 20-year monopoly on um, new medicines, which prevents or delays cheaper medicines from coming onto the market. Um, at the moment, a lot of those rules are enshrined in trade agreements, and um, we believe that um, there shouldn't be any reinforcement or increases in the rights, the, the monopoly rights, particularly on medicines in trade agreements. So those should also be changed. I think there's a lot more awareness about that now because of the pandemic. The pandemic has exposed that um, if, for instance, a new uh, vaccine is developed, there's now a movement globally to make sure that that vaccine is developed by governments across borders in a cooperative way and made available to everyone um, at an affordable price. That just has to happen in a pandemic rather than um, be developed by a private company and then subject to these patent laws, which are national laws, but they're also um, reinforced by trade agreements. Um, there's another set of things that's come to the fore, and that is that um, what these trade agreements do is reinforce global production chains and discourage um, what they basically say is that you should specialise only in your most globally competitive products and import everything else. Now, for Australia, that means we specialise in agricultural and mining exports, services exports. Education has become a services export, for example, but we have much less diverse manufacturing. And so that's why we, we didn't have the capacity 
to produce face every, everything from face masks to respirators. I think now there's a consensus developing that we need to have a more diverse manufacturing sector so that we can actually make sure that we have the capacity to produce essential health products in a pandemic. Uh, so that's another change that, that we need to have trade rules that are not so um, strict that we can't have local industry policies to um, support some essential local industries. And we need to make sure that trade rules don't stop governments from regulating in all sorts of areas um, in the public interest. Another thing that appears in a lot of these trade agreements are trade and services chapters, which basically say that you should open up most services to private foreign investment and that they treat regulation of services as if it were a tariff. That is, you freeze it at current levels and you can't increase it in future. Now, it's perfectly obvious that there are lots of changes but in a pan which require increased rather than decreased regulation of things like health and other services. There are also trade in services chapters in these agreements which basically restrict the ways in which governments can regulate um, all kinds of services ranging from health uh, and education to energy services and they uh, treat they open up services, uh, they open up these services to foreign investment and um, make it difficult for governments to make new or ch change regulation applying to those services. And so that's another thing that we want changed. Uh, trade agreements should not restrict the ways in which governments can regulate services. Um, the pandemic is a a perfect example where you have to be able to regulate, introduce new and different kinds of regulations. Um, and I guess finally I want to say that all of these changes, excluding extra rights for investors to sue governments, excluding, um, uh, sorry, all of these changes, excluding investor rights to sue governments, excluding longer monopolies on medicines, um, excluding restrictions on government services, all of the changes that I've talked about should mean that we end up with trade policy and a trading system which meets the needs of people rather than the needs of global corporations. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. So these two soundscapes were made available by Think Tanja, an organisation that uh, based in Tanja, Morocco, that looks at urban challenges through art and different mediums. السفر السياحة Voyage You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. So we just heard a little 
snippet of what we played um, a number of weeks ago now, but we played an audio landscape or a soundscape from Morocco. This was a production that I did with another participant in the workshop from Think Tanja. And Think Tanja is an organization that looks at the social impacts of urbanization in the country's north, but specifically in the city of Tanja, which has now become a hotspot for commerce. And so what's happened is not only has the city expanded at high speed rates, let's say, ever since the construction of the largest border in Africa and the high speed rail connecting the north of the country to the centre, it's also been positioned as the gateway into Africa. So Morocco has very, as in the past 20 years, made a huge effort to uh, position themselves as a country, as a nation state, to be the sort of doorway into Africa from Europe and vice versa. So not only have they done this via their maritime ports, so for example, the large port in Tanja, Tanja's Mediterranean port, but also through flights, for example. So a lot of flights will transit Morocco to go into other parts of Africa. Not only that, there's been a number of investment projects done via Moroccan banks but funded through the EU to promote people staying in Africa, pretty much so, if we want to be crude about it. Uh, so, for example, uh, in Tanja itself, a trade zone where uh, companies can set up their, their offices uh, tax-free. And in that zone, for example, there is a television channel called, called Media, and Media have uh, bureaus not only in Morocco, but also in the Ivory Coast and Senegal. So this strategy started in, um, in 2016, where they created two uh, different chains. So one uh, francophone chain and one Arabophone chain. And the Francophone chain was really marketed towards French-speaking Africa, so West Africa mostly, which is where their bureaus are located. And the, the topics that they cover are not only migration, but also what they quote-unquote deem positive stories, so around economic development and entrepreneurship and a huge focus on youth and what is happening in their countries. And so the push is evident. This company was set up in 2006 by the French uh, and was then, then became 100% Moroccan in 2008. But yeah, we, we can see that since 2016 into today, the focus has been on, on looking outwards to Africa. And this is part of Morocco's strategy as well. But also, uh, Morocco is the border country between, uh, you could say, Africa and Europe, between the global south and the global north. Uh, and you can see these sort of different forms of colonisation, soft colonisation coming through. A simple example of Medellin TV. This is all to sort of locate Tangier as a city. And I think Tangier does exactly that through art and sort of looks is a cultural platform that explores Tanja from this sort of experimental as, a, as an urban space that's shifting and changing um, and looks at all these intersections within, within that and through um, artistic mediums. And so this workshop that was hosted by 
uh, really brilliant ra- ra- radiographer. Her name is Chloe de Bac, and she is based in Belgium. And so she came to Tangier and hosted this this workshop looking at soundscapes. So really listening to the city and listening to what's around you. And so what we'll hear next is uh, or two productions. So one is by Bill, the American who lives in Tanja, um, and the other one is by Amina. And so Bill's exploration or Bill's urban soundscape was uh, through the markets. So he walked through the markets and took sounds of the markets. And so when you're listening to that, please close your eyes and take time and listen to every single thing that you can hear and and think about what what are those what are those things uh and then amina takes us in the sort of in a central square in in tanja uh there's these uh street vendors that sell a lot of uh wares are mostly jackets jackets and shoes so one of them selling shoes and one of them selling jackets on the floor this is also uh quite interesting because a lot of a lot of clothes that you can find from either street vendors or street sellers, a second a secondhand clothing uh, at a at a quite cheap price as well, and some of that secondhand clothing is not only from uh, sort of disposed clothing in Morocco, but it's also disposed clothing coming from the West. And so, firstly, we'll listen to the market, which is called a souk in Arabic. <laughs> خليوها تهضر وتنهديها لواحد صاحبتي واختي وواحد الانتماء عزيزة عليا سميتها رقية من المغرب حتى لفرنسا حتى لبوغدا السلام عليكم صوت راديو معكم اسيا من الكاس صويرة لجد لا خاطركم بغيت امي ديال دوزي كنهديها للزوج ديالي رشيد وشكرا
So that was a production by Bill, and he walked through the Sook or the marketplace, uh, one of the non-touristic ones in Tanja. And next we'll hear a production by Amina, and she just stood outside next to some street vendors uh, selling their wares. أكبر متاجر أسيمة مروة أسواق سلام أتمنى لم تكن في الحسبان هذه برمسيا إحنا قلنا مستوردة عن طريق سوسيميليا مقرها جبل طارق للمصمم الإيطالي روبرتو كاباني والمصمم الإيطالي بولينا روسي باراتوري باخا سونفريسا بإسبار طلع خبرنا أجل على الهواء أتمنى لا تقاوم أتمنى خيالية بإسبار طلع الخلف الله برموسيو ليكيداسيون توتال تحت ثمن وقال غلط تحياتي so that was a production by Amina. And the workshop was hosted by Chloe Debax, who is a, radi- a very well-known radiographer who has produced some amazing uh, soundscapes from around the world. Just look her up on Google, Chloe Debax. And so that's it for this week. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll hear some more soundscapes from Morocco, but also some we'll learn a bit more about Think Tanja with a three-part series played over the next couple of weeks. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55am. Are you a person with a disability? If you are an Australian citizen, a permanent resident, or a recently accepted refugee or humanitarian entrant under the age of 65, you are able to apply for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. If you have met access requirements, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS, will help you access the government-funded supports you need. To find out more, visit the NDIS website or go to your nearest NDIS partner office and ask for a language interpreter to help you. NIDA and NDIA are sponsors of this radio station. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855 AM on your dial or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Up next, we're going to be hearing an interview I did with Paul Kidd from the Fitzroy Legal Service about the new COVID-19 policing hotline that they've set up. Thanks so much for joining us on the show, Paul. Good morning, Max. How are you going? Yeah, really well. Um, so this morning, you're on the show to tell us a little bit about the new COVID policing service that um, Fitzroy set up. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what, that, what that's about? 
Yeah, I guess as most listeners would be aware that um, the COVID-19 response includes uh, the capacity for police to give uh, fines out for people who breach the stay-at-home order. Uh, we're aware that there have been a lot of fines issued, a really a much larger number of fines than any other state. About 5,600 uh, was the last number that I heard. So lots of people dealing with fines, and it's a really expensive fine. It's a $1,600 fine. So um, we have set up a dedicated phone line so that people who've been affected by those fines, uh, who've been given a fine or been hassled by the police or been told to move on by the police and want some legal advice, we've got a special phone number uh, that's specific uh, to help people with that, uh, that issue, and it's open to anyone in Victoria who's got a concern about these fines. Could you talk a little bit about some of the sort of the broader observations and concerns that have already been coming out about who these fines are most impacting? Yeah, look, it's hard to know who they're most impacting because the police aren't releasing that kind of, of data. So um, the, the uh, Police Accountability Project have a, a website where they're collecting those stories. So if people have got stories about the policing of these uh, fines, they should go to covidpolicing.org.au and to make a report uh, to bring uh, to help us to, to collect the data. But, it, you know, inevitably, this is something where people suddenly find themselves uh, being fined for doing activities that previously were completely normal, you know, things like sitting in a park or going for a walk. Um, we think that it's um, the response by Victoria Police has been uh, disproportionate, uh, that there's been a reflex kind of response to go to uh, finding people where a more collaborative policing approach would probably have delivered just as good outcomes for public health without uh, having a lot of vulnerable piece, people having to deal with really expensive fines. Uh, so we're definitely concerned about the over-policing of it. Uh, we're definitely concerned about the huge number of fines that have been issued. And inevitably, the people who have been uh, impacted by this the most are people who are often out on the streets. And that means homeless people, that means Indigenous people, drug users, uh, sex workers, uh, people with mental health problems, people who have unstable accommodation, people whose accommodation is overcrowded and uncomfortable, who can't necessarily sit at home and just watch Netflix all day long, uh, find themselves out on the street, potentially come in contact with the police and potentially have one of these huge fines. We've spoken with quite a few people on the show in recent weeks about the absolute need for a public health response to the COVID crisis rather than a response that privileges further criminalisation. For example, a couple of weeks back we spoke with um, April Watson, Auntie Tanya Day's daughter. Could you share some of your thoughts on on the sort of Victorian government's continued pivot towards strategies of criminalisation rather than foregrounding a public health response at these times? Yeah, look, I think it really reveals a, a disconnect between the intention of the law and the way it's been executed. Um, you know, of course, physical distancing it has been absolutely essential and we all have a role to play in minimising the spread of this really dangerous uh, virus and that's an ongoing concern. Um, the reality is most people have been um, making, the, you know, doing the right thing and making the right efforts. Um, uh, and a lot of the stories that we've heard about people who've received fines, it's very hard to see where the public health risk uh, is, even though they may have technically breached the law. Uh, it's really hard to see where the risk is to public health. 
Um, different states have taken a different approach in terms of um, uh, enforcing these laws. Uh, we know that uh, uh, New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria have issued massive amounts of fines, particularly our state. Uh, you compare that with the ACT where a decision was taken early on to, to use a much more collaborative approach uh, for police to speak to people and to reinforce the message about physical distancing. Last I've heard, they've, they've, they've issued no fines, even though they, they could. So as I say, it's a kind of reflex reaction by the police when um, when laws are passed that, that come with the, the capacity for criminalisation. The police see it as their role uh, to enforce those laws. You know, what we really need is to enforce a sense of community around the need to work together to minimise the spread of this virus. But instead of that, the police are using a coercive uh, approach, which is often uh, very blunt and very uncaring about people's reasons why they might be out of the house. Uh, and, you know, a huge, huge number of fines that now potentially are going to cause a lot of financial hardship for people, but also potentially going to clog up the courts with you know, people being fined for what most people would consider to be trivial activities. Prior to the establishment of the new COVID policing line at Fitzroy Legal Service, were people accessing legal support when they were getting these fines? Do you know? Look, I think a lot of people just kind of are copying it on the chin and maybe not knowing where they can go. Um, our legal service normally, uh, when there is a pandemic on, we have a night uh, advice service that people can just rock up to. We've obviously had to uh, uh, suspend that service for the time being while we uh, we get through this crisis. Uh, so we established the phone line to make sure that people had access to uh, legal information, legal advice, and where appropriate representation. Uh, so people can just call the number. It's 0434 136. 501. Uh, we'll take down your details and you'll get a phone call back, usually within 24 hours from a lawyer. Um, depending on the circumstances, we can give people uh, basic advice. We can help them to understand what their options are in relation to fines. And we'll certainly, um, if appropriate, uh, give people legal representation and take their matters to court for them. Um, but, uh, yeah, certainly I think there's um, a lot of misunderstandings about what people can do in relation to these fines. There are different options that, that uh, people have, and uh, yeah, we're, we're just trying to make sure people have access to the advice they need. Have there been many instances so far, to your knowledge, where people have successfully challenged fines that they've received under the COVID laws? Yeah, look, it's really too early to know because um, certainly in terms of the courts, none of these fines will have come to court yet, and many, are, and they won't for many months uh, to come. The courts are very much on a go slow due to COVID-19 themselves. So uh, the backlog is building for anything that needs to come to court. Uh, people do have the option to ask the police to review the issuing of the fine, and that's certainly something we recommend people uh, consider doing if they think that what they were doing was, was um, something that shouldn't have attracted a fine, uh, then uh, they should ask for an internal review of the fine and the procedures for that. Uh, can be explained by our lawyers on the on the line, or that, or that people can find that out um, on the on the internet. Um, but certainly, you know, I think uh, particularly for people with limited financial means, uh, copying a sixteen hundred dollar fine is is a really uh, a big blow. Uh, and we do want to make sure people know that they've got some options. Yeah, that is so huge, sixteen hundred. I actually hadn't realised it was quite that much. Yeah, I mean, the maximum penalty for this offence is a lot higher than that, but that's the infringement uh, uh, penalty. And I think that certainly people who are on Centrelink, and obviously a lot more people are on Centrelink now than 
than there were um, eight weeks or so ago. Uh, people who are struggling financially should be aware that uh, even if you even if you um, uh, plead guilty for these fines, you may not have to pay that full amount. Um, there are there are some legal uh, complexities to that. Uh, it's got, and you should, or everyone should definitely get legal advice before they decide whether they're going to challenge a fine or have it dealt with in court. Um, and that's what we're there for. And I just want to ask you a little bit about the experience of community legal centres like yours during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, how has that, you know, impacted the sort of the supports that you've been able to provide? Have you been seeing it? Have you been seeing any changes in what people have been approaching you for assistance with during the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, look, it's, it's, um, obviously it, it cuts both ways for us because, uh, as is the case for any organisation that, um, uh, that's operating at the moment, we've had to change the way we work. So all of our lawyers are working from home, uh, except when they, when they need to be at court. So, um, you know, we've done the same kind of pivot to different working arrangements that most organisations have done. Uh, and at the same time, there are new legal challenges that people are facing and they, they range uh, from the dealing, uh, you know, dealing with COVID-19 related fines, uh, people with tenancy issues, people with employment issues, people who've been stood down, and there's a whole range of legal issues that that flow out of um, uh, this pandemic. So, uh, unfortunately, our nighttime advice service isn't able to operate at the moment. We want to get that going again as soon as it's safe uh, to do so. Uh, um, but in particular, you know, we feel like the most pressing need is to ensure that people who've been fined have access to legal advice that's, uh, that's free and confidential and they can do that uh, on our phone line. And before we wrap up, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you'd like to raise? Oh, there's so much to talk about. But no, look, the main thing is, look, the two things that I hope listeners will take home are that first of all, if you've, if you've had any dealings with the police, even if you weren't fined, go to covidpolicing.org.au and fill in the report there because we really need to know what, how these laws are being enforced, who's being targeted, what the police are doing. That's the, that's the way that we get the information we need to advocate for broad systemic change. Uh, but if people have got a, a, have been fined, if people have been given a move on order, if they think they've been mistreated by the police, uh, then legal advice is available. It's a, uh, just call 0434 136 501 uh, and uh, we will uh, be in touch to provide you with that advice. It's open to anyone in Victoria. It's not just for people who are who are struggling. It's not just for people in the city of Yarra. Uh, we'll we'll take calls from across Victoria and we'll uh, uh, do the best we can to support people. Awesome. Thanks so much, Paul, for joining us on Thursday Breakfast. Cheers, Max. Thanks very much. So that was Paul Kidd from Fitzroy Legal Service letting us know about their new COVID policing hotline, a free information and advice phone service for folks who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. All right. Thanks so much for listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast this morning. So first up, we had the uh, last episode of Liberation Loops where I was speaking with Simon Clough from Brookred, a peer-led mental health service. And then we heard some poetry from Timar Ball. Then we had a conversation um, between Max and Dr. Patricia Reynolds about how mining companies, big pharma and other global corporations use trade agreements to pressure and sue governments, including the impacts of essential COVID-19 public health measures. And then in collaboration with 
Think Tanja, an organisation that looks into the social impacts of urbanisation in Tanja, Morocco, uh, we heard some audio landscapes from the city that Scheherazade recorded. And then lastly, Max spoke with Paul Kidd from Fitzroy Legal Service about their new COVID policing service. And that's all we have time for this morning on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. So stay tuned for Lost in Science and see you back here next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.